Well, as you likely remember, the theme of these chapels has been discipleship, right? Discipleship. And Dr. Reed, in a, in a chapel message a couple weeks ago, um, he said that some of the messages that he's been preaching have been hard-hitting, you know, calling you to action and hard to hear and challenging. And some of them have been more lifting up and encouraging. Well, this is one of those lifting up and encouraging ones. But in this case, the lifting up and encouraging is a call for you to lift up and encourage others. Okay, so um, the title of today's message, if you want a title, is I Thank God for You. Title is I Thank God for You. And it comes from the very first words after the introduction of the letter, where Paul says to the Corinthian Christians, after his introduction, the first thing he says is, I always thank my God for you. Today we're going to see that part of our discipleship, part of our faithful walk with Christ, is, it's going to look like this, it's going to be consistently encouraging others in their walk with Christ. Part of our faithful walk with Christ is to have a posture of, I thank God for you. I thank God for you. And consistently encouraging others in Christ. So what does this look like? What did it look like in the Corinthian church? What did it look like in Paul's relationship with these people? Well, we're going to unpack it in our time this morning. We're going to look at three points because I'm a preacher, right? Three points. We're going to look at the people, the praise, and some practical lessons. We're going to begin with the people. Who are these people? We're going to kind of get the context there. We're going to look at the praise. We're going to overview our passage, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 to 9. What does Paul say to them? And the third thing we're going to do is five practical lessons as we go. Okay? So let's begin with the people. And before I even read the scripture, we're going to do our whole first point. And we're going to get a bit of a sense of the context. Now, if I were to mention Las Vegas, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Maybe Sin City? Uh, It wasn't too long ago that my wife and I were traveling, and we had to pass through Vegas. Uh, We flew to Vegas, rented a car, and went on because it was a cheap flight, right? And on the way home, we had to stay in Vegas overnight. And we were going to stay near the airport. And some friends said to us, no, you've got to see the, the strip, the downtown strip. And I said, ah, I'm not into all that stuff. And they said, no, 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 the opulence. And the, it's quite a spectacle. You should go and see it. So we took the advice and we did. And we arrived at, at night on the Las Vegas strip. And yes, there was opulence all around us. But all that stuck out to us was the sin happening all around us. And I'm not going to get graphic, but I'll just say, you know, Las Vegas is a city of a million people. There's lots of nice neighborhoods, but that at night on the downtown strip, sin is not hidden. Sin is not hidden there. You know, it, it, we felt like we'd entered a place where wrong was made to seem right. Now, if we were to blast back 2,000 years and we visited first century Corinth, we might even conclude this feels worse than Vegas. When people in the first century heard the mention of Corinth, they immediately thought of a heap of gross sins. Corinth was a, such a morally corrupt place 
that the ancients invented a word to describe a sinful, debauched person. You know what it was? A Corinthian. See, your, your neighbor moves in and they're always smoking pot outside and they're always up all night and they're throwing loud parties and you might say to your friends, oh no, a real Corinthian just moved in next door. Well, the city of Corinth was a, ancient Corinth was a thriving city, financially speaking. It was built on a skinny piece of land on a major trade route. And that meant that tons of trade traffic was funneled through Corinth. And lots of people with lots of money were consistently coming and going. It was also a thriving port city. Cargo ships could save a lot of time. Instead of sailing all the way around, they could dock at Corinth and portage their load a few kilometers over land instead of sailing the long way around. Corinth, 2,000 years ago, attracted people who moved away from home and never returned. It attracted money. It was a thriving city. Now, I'm old enough that when I was a kid, um, I used to say the Lord's Prayer in school. you believe that? That dates me, doesn't it? Every day and in school, we'd arrive in, in the public school system in Oshawa, of all places. We'd arrive and we'd say the Lord's Prayer as a part of our, part of our, our morning. In Corinth, businessmen and school kids would be required to offer prayers and sacrifices to other gods. It's just a fabric of life. Sexual misconduct and idolatry and other gross sins were simply a way of life in this wealthy, debauched city. Married men would visit um, cult prostitutes as an accepted practice. Doesn't sound like a very nice place, does it? Well, get this. It was into this horrible context that the Apostle Paul and others brought the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, what a testimony to the power of the gospel that people from all walks of life in Corinth were saved. Cult prostitutes and their former customers began worshiping side by side the God who sent his son to die for their sins. Idolaters and adulterers and thieves and drug addicts and alcoholics and con men and liars were saved by God's free grace. All these kinds of people heard the good news of Jesus Christ. They heard, a God, they heard about a God who, while they were still sinners, pursued them. They heard about a God who sent his son to die, the de- to live the life, the perfect life that they failed to live, and then to die the death under the God's wrath that they deserved to die, so that in him they could be the righteousness of God. The very Corinthian people, God made him to be, who knew no sin, to be sin for you, Corinthian people, so that in you, you can, you can have the righteousness of God. These people were saved. They were formed into churches. They were bonded together in Jesus Christ. They became a family. They were an authentic Christian church. They were a community of disciples of Jesus Christ. Do you hear the powerful lesson there? The gospel is real and powerful 
to save the worst of sinners. You know, Paul boldly brought the gospel into sinful Corinth, and the city was never the same. The city was never the same. You ever heard of George Whitfield and John Wesley? You've studied him, them in school, you know, the great preachers in the 1700s, First Great Awakening? Well, if you read Arnold Dalimore's two-volume biography of Whitfield, the very first chapter is the condition of England before Whitfield and Wesley. And it was horrible. And the point he's making there is Whitfield and Wesley's preaching of the gospel changed England. It changed things, and it changed America, too. And then you could say Wilberforce and the abolition of the slave trade was the next generation. That's part of the fruit of the preaching of the gospel. And I could go on. The gospel's powerful. And get this. That means it's not beyond you. That means you can be forgiven for that sin that you struggle with. That means that your loved one who you pray for and just seems so far beyond ever having hope, there's hope for them. Keep praying for them. Keep sharing with them. This gospel is real and powerful. Your loved one, your neighbor is not beyond this gospel. But get, but as we keep looking at the Corinthian church, and we see the birth of this church, and we say, what a miracle in the context it was in, then it starts to get sloppy. You ever heard of a, you ever hear a message, and everything's kind of onward and upward, you know, this people get saved, and now it's everything's hunky-dory and good? Well, that's not real life, is it? Because when the, if we know anything about the way of sanctification, the way God makes his people actually holy, we know that biblically, God works progressively over time in people's hearts and lives. When you became a Christian, did you become perfect? I didn't. Well, no one does. And these people were saved out of this brutal life, and they were being radically transformed by God. But that meant the church, and I think the, the, the word that's often thrown around today in our parlance is, the church was messy. Do you go to a messy church? You go to a messy church with real life stuff happening? Why was this church messy? Because brutal sin kept popping up in it. In so many ways, this was a nightmare church. This is not the first church that you want to go to as senior pastor after graduating from Heritage. You know, we could almost say that 1 Corinthians is a 16-chapter rebuke by the Apostle Paul to the Corinthian church. Over and over again, we see moral problems in the church, and at the end, one big theological problem. These saved sinners struggled deeply. So just listen to some of the things that Paul's going to address in the letter as a whole. 1 verse 10, there were divisions in the church. 1 verse 11, people were fighting with each other. 1 verse 12, that people loved certain leaders more than their identity in Christ. 3 verse 1, they weren't spiritual. They were of the flesh. 4 verse 7, spiritual pride was a huge problem. Chapter 5, sexual immorality was in the church, and it was so bad that even pagans don't stoop to what the sexual immorality was going on among one person in the church. 
Chapter 6, 1 to 11, Christians are suing each other in secular courts. Chapter 6, 12 and following, church members are visiting prostitutes. Chapter 7, church is encouraging, the church is encouraging singleness to people who desire to marry. Chapter 8, verse 9, stronger Christians are putting stumbling blocks before weak Christians. Chapter 10, verse 14, some church members struggle with worshiping idols. Chapter 11, women are participating in the worship service. Good thing. Refuse to wear cultural signs of submission to church leaders. Bad thing. Chapter 11, 16, Christians there are inclined to be contentious. Chapter 11, 17 and following, people come to the Lord's Supper and they're divided. And they get drunk on the wine that symbolized Christ's blood shed for their sins. Chapters 12 to 14, they use spiritual gifts for elitism, not for the common good, not for the building up of the body. Chapter 14, 26, the worship services were chaotic and disorderly. And then get this, chapters 15, one theological problem. They deny or at least question the future resurrection of the body and imply Christ wasn't even raised from the dead physically. That's a messy church. If you hear this description of a church and do you want to come here and be the pastor? Like, that doesn't sound very easy, does it? That doesn't sound encouraging. From the outside looking in, we might even be tempted to ask tempted to ask a really simple question. Is this even an authentic church? We know that Paul is not afraid to tell the church they've strayed from Christ and they're not in Christ. Read Galatians, right? You read Galatians. I'm astonished that you've abandoned the one who called you. And he goes on. The tone of Galatians is, you've abandoned Christ, come back. I have nothing good to say to you. You've denied the simple gospel. If you continue as you are, you will not be saved. And yet, in this letter, in 1 Corinthians, Paul begins differently. So let's look second at the praise. To this church, so full of sin, so messy, we might say, Paul is going to strongly rebuke them for almost 16 chapters in a sustained correction, correction, correction. Here is how he begins. I'll read from the Christian Standard Bible. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 to 9. Paul, called as an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints, with all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of the grace of God given to you in Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in him in every way 
in all speech and all knowledge. In this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. You were called by him into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's the word of God. Simplify. Paul begins his letter by encouraging them. He tells them, the things about them, the specific things about them, and the specific things about God in his relationship with them that he thanks God for all the time. When Paul thinks of the Corinthian Christians, and when Paul writes to the Corinthian Christians, the first thing that comes to his mind is thankfulness. Does that shock you? That should shock you. You know, that, that person in your life, in your church or in your dorm who irks you, does the first thing that come to your mind, I thank God for you. Well, that's the Apostle Paul. So, in verse 2, I thank God. You people make up the church of God at Corinth. You are God's church. You're really a church. You're not fakes. Verse 2, you are sanctified. You're made holy in Christ Jesus. Jesus' blood has been shed for you, and you are clean. Verse 2, you're called to be holy. You're called to be set apart for God. Verse 2, you're part of the universal church, all Christians of all time. He says, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, so they're part of something bigger than, than themselves. Verse 3, they're objects of God's grace, his undeserved favor. Verse 3, they're recipients of God's peace, his wholeness, his abundant life. Verse 4, the body of the letter begins again. I always thank God for you. This means whenever Paul prays, he oozes with thanks for this church family. Why? Verses 4 and 5, Paul says, because God's grace was given to you in Christ Jesus. You've been enriched in every way. Your words and knowledge are all given you by Christ. You're gifted in these ways by the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, the, the gospel was confirmed in you because you responded to it. You yourselves show the power of the gospel. Verse 7, you don't lack any spiritual gift. You're a complete church. Verse 7, you eagerly await for the return of Christ. Evidently, chapter 15, they're toying with denying the resurrection of the body. But 1 verse 7 they eagerly await for the return of Christ. They don't fully deny, and they don't deny, and he's holding them. Verses 8 and 9, God has called you. God will keep you to the day of Christ. I'm sorry, but in light of all the problems at this church, 
I got to confess something to you. You know, you, you go to the doctor and they, you sit down and they take the rubber hammer thing. There's probably a name for it. And they hit your knee and what do you do? You kick, right? What's your reflex reaction? What would your reflex reaction be to this church? My reflex with these kinds of people would not be this. I, I feel the word of God encouraging me in a rebuking kind of encouragement right now. Now, throughout the letter, Paul's going to model, you also don't sweep sin under the carpet. He's not saying rose color these people. He's saying both. Begin the time thanking God, and here's all the specific things I see in your life I'm thankful for, but address sin. He begins his letter modeling the need, modeling the call to identify specific ways God is working in other people, in other Christians, and telling them. And telling them. Now, as you think about fellowship in Heritage Dorm, or fellowship in your local church family. I hope you have committed to and become a member of a local church while you're at Heritage. It is so important for us to actually tell people when we see God at work in their lives, even when, or even especially when, there are sins that we also need to address. Okay? This is just one model of how to do it, okay? So story time. Um, when I was a member at Grace Fellowship Church in Toronto, Paul Martin, Tim Challies, um, others are serving there. And my wife and I were there and um, we experienced something that absolutely blew us away. They called their small groups TAG, T-A-G, Truth Application Groups. And we were all, all the members of the church were required to be in a small group, required to be in a tag. And we met weekly for a season. And then for a season, there'd be evening services. And um, the focus of tags was applying the sermon to our lives. And we just discuss it. But one little section of each tag, one little section of our small group meeting each week was called evidences of grace. And we would pick a different person each week and we'd know ahead of time, a week ahead of time, who we're going to talk, talk about in front of them. And we would just spend time sharing with that person specific things in their life that we see as an evidence of God's grace at work in them. Specific things from their life that we see as an evidence of God's grace. This was not a time for rebuke. This was not a time for calling out of sin. This was not a time for, I see good things, but it was just all encouragement. Let me tell you, that was powerful. Do you ever want to be bonded with the people? Spend time weekly talking about how the sermon can be applied more deeply into the fabric of your life. And then look a person in the eye and just have a list of three or four things that you thought of this week. And the person beside you has a list of three or four things and then them and them and them. And all of a sudden you're hearing 10 and 15 and 20 things from people. 
And do you know what the response is? Well, the response is not, yeah, I am great. The response is, my God is great. I actually feel that assurance that he's actually truly working in my heart and in my life. And then the next week we pick a different person and we go on. Well, what does it look like in the Corinthian church, practically speaking? We'll, we'll, we'll conclude here with five practical lessons, five lessons about Christian encouragement from 1 Corinthians 1, 1 to 9 as we close, okay? Five practical lessons the way it looked. I shared the way it looked in my church in Toronto when I was there. I'm not there anymore. We worship at West Highland in Hamilton. Love that church. Um, But five lessons from Corinthians as we go. First, okay? Encourage Christians in your life when you see God at work in their lives. Encourage Christians... Encourage the Christians in your life when you see God at work in their life. This, brothers and sisters, is praise of God, not people. Notice that Paul never says, you've done such a good job. He says, no, God has done it all. This is like Paul taking a giant highlighter and he's saying to these people, here's what God's been doing. I've seen it. And I'm so encouraged because it's clearly all God. And it shows me, it testifies to me, it's evidence to me that God's grace is active in your life. That means you're the Lord's. You ever been discouraged as a Christian? You ever, have you ever come to a place, do I really even know him? Well, when stuff like this gets said to you, this is like a big old granite foundation for your faith that you say, I can see God working. I'm going to keep going. Okay, I'm so thankful I see these things because they are evidence God is at work in your lives. Second encouragement, encourage Christians in your life even if, or especially if, there's also sin in their lives that needs to be confronted. Encourage Christians in your life, even if, or even especially if, there's sin in their lives that need to be confronted. Look at the people in Corinth. The encouragement Paul begins with is done to prideful people. They were about to be rebuked for spiritual elitism and pride and selfish use of spiritual gifts and chaotic and disorderly worship services. And to those people, Paul says, I'm so thankful that you don't lack any spiritual gift. We learn here that this kind of encouragement is appropriate even when a Christian has sin in their lives. If there is a glimmer of grace, it's appropriate to highlight it for people. How do you think Paul's rebuke would be received after that kind of context? Right? You ever hear this saying, it's easier to catch a fly with honey? 
But Paul's not doing it as a strategy. He's actually authentically thankful. I always thank my God for you. Third, encourage all authentic Christians. This encouragement ought to well up in us for all authentic Christians. This is especially evident, 1 Corinthians 1. What a beautiful, what a beautiful, what a brutal church. But that's not what Paul thought. What a beautiful church that needs to grow in grace. Again, how easy would it be to concentrate on all the sin? But no, Paul, the first thing is the encouragement. Do you find yourself only discouraged? I'm going to ask you this again about a particular brother or sister in Christ. When you think of them, that you can only think about their sin that discourages you? What about an entire church? What about your church? What this could reveal is pride in your heart. Do you know yourself as an undeserving sinner? You know, if this is a struggle for you, I I encourage you, and I'm, I'm serious, I encourage you to begin a journal or whatever, just time of prayer where you list ways, where you thank God for ways you see him working in the lives of the people in your life, including that person that you just feel discouragement about. Fourth, encourage only authentic Christians in this way, anyway. You can encourage, you can encourage non-Christians in lots of ways, but encourage only authentic Christians in this way. Compare again the way 1 Corinthians opens with the way Galatians opens. You know, very different letters. When someone's denying the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul doesn't say, I thank God for you. We're all love. It's postmodern, dude. It's, it's, it's so, everything's cool. And, you know, this, there's no progressive Christianity going on in the life of the apostle Paul. No, when someone's denying the gospel, I'm astonished that, and he goes on. You've abandoned the one who No, in 1 Corinthians, he sees, I see glimmers of grace, and I'm going to uplift it, but I'm not indiscriminate in my gospel encouragement. Fifth and finally, as we close, encourage Christians by pointing out specific evidences of God's grace that you see in their lives. Encourage Christians by pointing out specific evidences of God's grace that you see in their lives. A little while ago, I received a a message, Facebook message, from a former student. And this was a student at another school. I taught a summer course and and this person hunted, tracked me down, hunted me down, they tracked me down. And they they began this way. I I know this is going to come out of the blue, but, and that could go either way, right? You think, oh, okay, I got to get my wall up and protect myself here, whatever. And they just said, I was so impacted. And they just went on about ways that they were impacted by the course and it continued to impact. And that was just massively encouraging to me. 
because you, you, you fly in, you do your thing. If this was COVID, so I was literally virtually preaching at a computer in my son's room. I was teaching at a computer in my son's room with the Raptors poster in the background to people all over Western Canada. So there was just like, uh, I hid the Maple Leaf stuff. And, uh, and I just, you can only engage so much with a computer screen, right? And I'd never met these people. It's not like my heritage classes where I know the people. And okay, we got this weird COVID thing happening and we're, no, I, I'd never met these people. And this student said, okay, here, and she went on to list, her, and her, her husband's a pastor, and um, she went on to list specific ways that the teaching impacted her life and her ministry. And I wrote her back and I thanked her and I said, I really appreciate that you got so specific. And she said this, and I learned a ton from her. She said this, I find that when I encourage generally, it just wells up pride in people's hearts. But when I encourage specifically, people are like gospel encouragement happens. When the apostle, what the apostle Paul models in 1 Corinthians 1 verses 1 to 9 is specific encouragement. He identifies particular areas of life in in individuals or in this case, an entire church family. And he says, this is healthy. I see this in you. And this is God working. Specific things people can be encouraged by. We don't simply need to hear we are appreciated generally. That's a recipe for pride. I'm so great. You get puffed up like a peacock. We need to hear specific evidences in our lives that God is working. Well, as a part of your discipleship at Heritage, as a part of your discipleship, as you are living at Heritage and serving and at school at Heritage, will you seek to grow in being, as a part of your discipleship, I thank God for you kind of posture to the people in your life. Let's pray. Father, all of us need help to grow in this. There's not a single one of us that does this fully. I thank you for what we model here. I thank you that when the gospel is at work in someone's life, there is lots to be thankful for, even when there's maybe also things to rebuke. I pray that at Heritage College and Seminary, I pray that in local church, local churches around us here, you would grow us in these ways. And I thank God for you for specific evidences of your grace in people's lives. And also not a cowering or a pulling back from, and I also need to talk to you about this. God, I pray that you deepen us. I thank you for your love and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.